I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. All other news stories fade into insignificance this week with the aftermath of Typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines, thought to be the strongest storm in recorded history. Of particular concern is the sad fact that some of the poorest communities in the island seem to have been worst hit. To tell us more about what's going on in that part of the world and how people of faith are helping and can help further, we're joined by Florence Mutasasara of Christian Aid. Florence, the last time we met we were talking about gospel music but this is an issue of a very different order can you tell us how serious this storm and its outcome are uh the storm hit the philippines on friday there was a bit of preparation but when the storm actually hit it was so many times over what they were expected so they were not ready for the devastation that it left in its wake so it has left thousands of people dead and initially the number that was said was 10,000 and that has been brought down to about 2,300. They don't know really how many people have are missing but they know that millions have been affected. So the, the actual impact is catastrophic. Now, as we come towards the end of the week, we're hearing stories that some aid is starting to get through, but a lot of these villages are inaccessible and there's further rain predicted, which is going to hamper the relief efforts even more. Especially with Christian aid, the main focus has been getting people from areas that have been really badly affected into places where they can get shelter, they can get food, they can get medicines, they can get fast aid kits. But even as you mentioned yourself, there have been rains predicted, which could be make, the, make the situation worse. Communication is down, power lines are down. The effort is much a conjoined effort of the international aid agencies with local partners. The Christian Aid has local partners who are already on the ground, who are working with the local government as well. So you have a balance of everybody coming together to see that they can try and get people closer to the aid but also to get enough aid in. The UN has asked for about 300 million to be collected. I know Irish Aid itself has given 1 million and has taken in an aid package of about 500,000 worth. So the aid effort is great. The issues they're facing now is getting the aid to the people or getting the people to the aid. And a lot of criticism of government, but they can't really be blamed for the amount of devastation that has been caused, can they? People are blaming the government and saying they've been really slow in responding. The Philippines is a poverty-stricken country. I mean, 30% of the population lives below the poverty line. So it's not a well-developed country with an insurmountable amount of resources. So in addition to that, expecting them to respond as quick as a rich or developed nation is not really fair that there is a level of responsibility where they have failed as well. Now, Christian Aid is your organisation, but other faith organisations responding as well, both in this country and on the ground. What can they offer? We're hearing the word desperation all week. The, The word desperation, the word devastation, catastrophic, people running out of hope has been around all week. But like I said, where there is life, there is hope. We have had support as Christian Aid because we are a church-owned organization from the Church of Ireland Bishops Appeal, God bless them, the Methodist Church in Ireland. 
we've had individual churches coming together and would like to encourage churches. The Catholic Church, the Archbishop mentioned there'll be collections on Sunday. Whatever people can give, you know, with your faith, put in whatever situation you're going through, we can put that to the side for a while and just concentrate on these people who are facing a really huge devastation. Make your donation in your local church. Make it with a local charity, whether it's Christian Aid, Tier Fund, Trocra, Concern. Make your donation. But even as you're giving, we encourage people to pray. On our website, christianaid.ie, if people are thinking, what should I pray for? If you go to christianaid.ie forward slash emergencies, there's an amazing prayer that, that you can pray with thousands of other people. So the people in the Philippines and also the Filipino people in Ireland know that Ireland is supporting them. Ireland is praying for them. We have a huge Filipino population. Most of the churches, my own church as well, we have a huge Filipino community within our church, and they're organizing themselves as well, so the church is supporting them. So if you know anybody who's a Filipino person, call them, text them, send them an email, drop by, stand with them. They're worried about their friends. They're worried about their loved ones. They're worried about their country. So in any way that you can show that, you know, we are with you, we are praying with you, you're on our hearts, please do it. You know, there's been stories about looting and crime. And on the one hand, if there is a shop and there's food and water with the level of devastation, I wouldn't, and I might get in trouble for this, but I wouldn't really call it as much a crime when people are so desperate. I think a priest has been quoted on the BBC as saying something similar. Yes, you know, you're so desperate. My children are hungry. I am a little bit more sympathetic and more tolerant in the case that when I see it being called crime levels, I am kind of hesitant on that one. There are people there and they're calm and they're stoic. You don't have a choice. You find a lot of countries that are hit by devastation that you can either fall apart or you can see what has happened. You grieve, you're hurting, but then you pull yourself together and you see what you can do. Florence, thank you. Now we come to a book by John Booth Davies, Emeritus Professor of Psychology at the University of Strathclyde, who argues from a psychologist's perspective that religion and science are perhaps not the polar opposites that Richard Dawkins assumes and that belief in God may be no less logical than belief in high-end physics. To discuss the book, we're joined by Irish Times columnist and author Joe Humphreys. You're welcome to the God Slot, Joe. Thanks very much. The author John Davies describes scientists as the new priesthood. What does he mean by that? Yes, well, I suppose he has specific scientists in mind, such as Dawkins, such as Stephen Hawking, Stephen Pinker, who are very out there in in the public domain, arguing uh, the role of science and the importance of science in our overall knowledge of of mankind, uh, humankind and and the origins of the universe. I suppose he looks at them as a priesthood in certain respects. One, their intolerance to dissent. A lot of these public uh, scientists would attack critics as heretics and wouldn't really countenance any challenge to scientific orthodoxy. And and the second way he'd sort of suggest that they're overreaching themselves in a way sometimes the priesthood perhaps has traditionally done into areas that wouldn't be their expertise and maybe the the use of science um, particularly to um, say do down the likes of religion uh, philosophy and metaphysics and exploring areas outside of the purely scientific and he'd feel this is a, a misappropriation of science. Who's the book aimed at? The book is primarily aimed at those without uh, probably a religious belief. He himself is an atheist he says at the outset 
but he doesn't necessarily, he's not anti-religious. But he, he's challenging, I suppose, principally uh, a drift towards acceptance of uh, what he'd see as, as maybe an unchallenging view of these of, of scientific advocates. And maybe people, as I say, going beyond science, because a lot of scientists bristle at the notion that um, they're a, a, a one-dimensional unit and a lot of scientists wouldn't be going into the political world or into the religious world. But uh, I suppose there has been a, a, a mission creep, if you like, that's detected there among uh, the scientific community. And he, he would be trying to push that back because he himself is a psychologist uh, with a scientific background, although not a you know, sort of, uh, deep scientific research background. And he's coming like he's not the only one, if you like, resisting that mission creep. There's been a lot of there's been other authors you know, people like Raymond Tallis, the neuroscientist, Thomas Nagel, the American philosopher, uh, for instance, have 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 publicly criticised and written around this um, uh, very strongly and indeed have been attacked as, as heretics by the, the scientific uh, community, for want of a, a better word. Now, he contends that it's just as rational to believe that God created the universe as the Big Bang. How does he arrive at that position? Primarily here, he's looking at the quality of the Big Bang theory rather than the, the, the quality of believing in God. I, I, I suppose there is a number of alternative theories which has, have emerged and he's, he's highlighting that you've the sort of the one in vogue at the moment is the Big Bounce theory rather than the Big Bang theory uh, or the multiverse theory is another one. So he gets very, he, he gives a kind of a layperson's uh, analysis of these sort of vast array of, of theories and how the Big Bang theory is, has fallen apart. Well, does he conclude that science is a type of faith? He does say that scientists always say we'll move on and there'll be more knowledge to come and we'll eventually get there where we'll have the answers for everything, basically. What he's speaking up for is the notion that there is a whole realm of exploration, of, of discovery outside of the purely scientific that science really has little or no chance of, of answering or, or speaking to. And uh, so it's it's that notion that science sort of is the only legitimate form of human inquiry that that he describes as a type of faith. He, he, he's, he's keen to highlight as a psychologist as well a lot of the, the the flaws in human nature that apply to all of us, including scientists, you know, biases within oneself, you know, a kind of a, a, a group think that can creep in. And he's keen to emphasise that things like consensus within the scientific community is not the same as truth. And scientists can be just as prone as anyone else to closing ranks and, and uh, having a, a blind faith, if you like, in certain solutions or certain answers. Now, he starts off in the prologue with the quote by Stuart Chase, for those who believe no proof is necessary, for those who don't, no proof is possible. And he says that that cuts both ways. Again, it's it's kind of he's levelling the playing field, if you like. What he's not necessarily bringing up religious belief, but he's sort of taking down scientific belief a few pegs. He's not, uh, in, I suppose, equating all scientific theory as on a, on a level playing field. And he distinguished, for instance, things like evolutionary theory from Big Bang theory. He, he'd sort of make the case that look, evolutionary theory has a lot more. Uh, real um, provable evidence behind it. There's a, there are observable uh, steps that you can that you can uh, follow. Whereas um, a lot of our theories around the origin of the cosmos are really in their infancy, and in other fields, things like in particle physics and so on, where your big jumps are being made. And 
I suppose scientists would would say, look, they're, they're not, as I say, following a, a purely faith based path in this. They're, they're doing scientific work. They're operating under assumptions, but um, they'd say at least, you know, if they're doing proper science, that that they're willing always to, to challenge their you know underlying assumptions. I suppose his message to both the, the, the scientific community or the atheist or the scientistic community or however you describe it and both the, and the religious community is is must try harder. And that book is called God versus Particle Physics, a no score draw. It's by John Davies and published by Imprint Academic. Joe Humphreys, thank you for reviewing it for us. Thank you. Gorgeous Grace and Sister Act are the first two books of a projected trilogy with the overall title The Babe's Bible, written by Church of England Minister Karen Jones. The novels are a fresh new approach to Christian fiction where the author cleverly uses the subgenre of chick lit, therefore appealing to a wider range of readers and lovers of women's commercial fiction. We're joined by Karen Jones, who's in our Bristol studio, and by our own reporter Louise Hall, who's been reading these books. Turning to the first book, Gorgeous Grace, the grace of the title is indeed gorgeous, Swedish looking, tall and blonde, working as a curate in a suburban parish near London. However, life for the new curate is not all plain sailing when she realises that her friend Chloe has become involved with the local vicar. Louise, if I can come to you first, women in the Bible seem to be very much the focus of this book. How are they portrayed? Well, I really enjoyed reading these books simply for that reason, that the women were the focus of attention. I mean, we hear so much about the 12 apostles and the men who were both followers and opposers to Jesus at the time. So it's really refreshing that uh, Karen is bringing to life these women back in the first century. And you have to remember, I suppose, that this was at a time when, you know, women were considered inferior. They were supposed to be in the home, tending to household chores or minding children and not really sitting at the feet of the Messiah, listening to him as he preached. It was also a time where prostitutes were shunned and it was illegal even to be seen talking to one. It was easy also for men to divorce their wives for very trivial reasons, including if they couldn't conceive. And so it's good to see them at the centre of this book and to see them overcome, I suppose, their past mistakes and, you know, to find new love through Jesus and, and his word. And I suppose we also see the females of long ago, uh, their past mistakes and their problems are mirrored with the characters of the present day. And uh, it really does make for intriguing reading. Now, Karen, can we come to you and ask you, what was your motivation in writing the books? And then talk us through that you run parallel stories to mirror what's happening, say, to Chloe. You use the experience of Leela from the Bible. Yeah. Well, um, my daughter was 17 at the time. She's now 22. And she said to me one day, oh, mum, the Bible's boring. I've heard it all before. And I thought, no, you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> so it was on the basis of that that I thought, I want to try and write something that would appeal to her and her friendship group. Um, that would help her realise that there's an awful lot there that she probably hasn't heard or doesn't know that's in the Bible. So that that was the initial um, diving board for me. And then once I got into it and realised that most of the women in the New Testament are maybe given a couple of sentences, you have to actually go digging to really grasp the importance that they had in the whole story and if you, th you know, you think that when Jesus died on the cross, it was women that were there and it was women that funded his ministry. It was women that were the first ones to see him resurrected. 
and yet we only get little tiny snippets of that in the Gospels, but yet they are so important in the whole overall story. So I wanted to just highlight this and bring it out. So that was that was the motivation. And as Louise says, isn't it the case that a lot of the problems that are in the Bible that were there in the first century are still very much alive in the 21st? Well, that's again why I wrote two stories in parallel, because I thought, well, I want to bring alive these 2,000-year-old stories, but I also want to make them applicable to today. I don't want my daughter to say, oh, well, that was then, this is now. So I wanted to say, look, the same issues are going on now for women and the same Jesus that we read about 2,000 years ago can have an impact on these situations now. Louise, coming back to you, how do the characters cope with the different traumas and, and do you find the resolution of their situations convincing? Well, I suppose the problems that the women, the four main women in the book face, they do eventually come full circle. There's a lot of focus on redemption in both books and that new life and new love can literally rise out from the ashes of the old. And I think Karen is really trying to reiterate the gospel messages and the teachings. And she talks about forgetting about the past and, you know, concentrating on the present and the future. And that a lot of healing can be obtained through forgiveness and reconciliation. I mean, it, there's a piece in the book where Grace, the curate, the protagonist of the book, decides after Sunday service that she's going to have this novel idea where she invites people to stay back after church for this prayer service, this healing service. There's a lot of talk about Pentecost and the Holy Spirit. And, you know, people in particular who would have problems in their lives and who might sometimes feel very alienated by the church. And I suppose, um, you know, it's it's saying that the church needs to be a place where people can go and be real about the things that are wrong in their lives. Karen, are the books reflective of your own views? Well, in my first curacy, I was in an Anglo-Catholic church in North London, North London, and I'd, I've come from an evangelical stable. So for me, it was quite uh, novel to be in this Anglo-Catholic setting and to... We actually used the Catholic Missal, <laughs> even though it was illegal and the bishop knew about it. He just turned a blind eye. So we were very high up the candle. And I learned so much about symbolism and about um, rituals that I just knew nothing about while I was there and absolutely loved all that. But with, along with that, that church had an emphasis on, on healing ministry um, and they had a group that used to pray regularly for people for healing and during each service during the Eucharist they would uh, offer prayer for healing. And I loved all that. I just thought that the way they mixed it together with the, the ancient traditions and the symbolism, but also brought in that fresh understanding of the imminent presence of God among his people. I loved that, and I wanted to portray that in, in the books. Now, one of the topics that you deal with in the second book is one that's quite current in, in our societies today, that's human trafficking. How did you deal with that? If we have warped views of women within the church, if we've got a theology that says oh, women are inferior, then how are we going to be able to stand up for women who are being trafficked? So it was kind of challenging theology that is in practice within the Anglican Church in the UK. You know, the, the vote for the women to go towards to be bishops was turned down last year. And um, I was thinking, well, how does that impact on human trafficking and the use of women in the sex trade? If, the, if women are looking at the church for help, they're not really going to think they're going to get much help, really, because women are treated as inferior beings within the church as well.
What kind of reaction have you had to the books? I've had huge positive response. I've had very, well, I can't think of any negative response. Both men and women love them. I'd been given the title Babe's Bible by the publisher, which I didn't really like, and I sort of, it sat with me for a while like a <laughs> growing wart. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I know, I, I, I wouldn't buy a book called Babe's Bible myself <laughs> because Babe in itself is a bit condescending to women, but um, I lived with it and I accepted it, and then I added the title Gorgeous Grace and then Sister Acts. Um, Louise, in the second book, we also find out a bit more about a mysterious man from Grace's past, James Martin. Talk to us about this and the parallels between St. Paul and the road to Damascus. Yeah, well, we're introduced to James Martin in the first book, and he arrives into the parish much to the distaste of Grace. She has a lot of um, hatred and resentment towards him. And you find out that Grace has a bit of a past herself. She was abused by her father when she was younger. And when she went to college, she refused any sort of financial support from him. And she, needless to say, had to find a way to put herself through college. So she reluctantly joined an escort agency. This in turn led to prostitution. And James Martin was one of her regular clients. She fell pregnant by him and he encouraged her to have an abortion. And this left untold psychological damage, obviously, to Grace. And she has this resentment. He doesn't instantly recognise her, but she recognises him. But you see this man and he's now grown up and he's married and he's a child of his own who he wants to get christened. And I suppose you see a man with great regret for what he did in his past life. And in the second book, as Grace is trying to help these trafficked women that uh, who have been rescued, James also wants to get involved and he trains to become a street pastor. But Grace still has this, you know, she, she wants to keep him at arm's length. So I suppose... Um, in when she's doing her writings then she brings to life the journey of Saul on the road to Damascus. So really I suppose what Karen is trying to do is show that people in modern day society can also have encounters with Christ. And Karen we have to ask you how much of your story is in the character of Grace? I, I think I'm scattered throughout all the characters uh, to some degree, uh, little bits of me. Um, for me the issue of suffering has been a big one, I've uh, wrestled with that for many years, having had a child who died um, 19 years ago now. And that's kind of coloured my whole life, really. Uh, I think uh, when you've had a child who, who's died, it does affect you mentally, emotionally, physically and spiritually. And uh, it really made me wrestle with those issues of if God is good, why do good, bad things happen to good people? And um, I wanted to explore all that, really, and uh, the ongoing emotional reactions that people have to suffering and how it affects the way they view the world and how they view God. And what brought you to ministry? The death of my son was the uh, crucible moment, really, in my life and uh, made me think about what I was doing with my life. My husband is a vicar, whether being a vicar's wife was what it was supposed to be, whether that was it for me, and realising that it wasn't, that I had more that I wanted to do and give. And um, it was just a journey of pushing on doors. Well, I was always 50-50 about getting ordained because I hadn't met any ordained women that I actually thought I could be like. Um, but, you know, I, it, I feel 50-50 about it now probably as well, seven years later, but... You know, I'm ordained and I believe it's the best fit for 
who I am and what I bring to the picture. Louise, you've read the two books. Is there any question you'd like to ask, Karen? I'd like to know when the third book is out. It's coming out in June, I think. And what's the working title for that one, Karen? It's Love Letter and it's based on the book of Ephesians. Well, we'll look forward to that. Karen Jones, it's been a pleasure. The books are certainly a new way of dealing with religious and ethical topics. They're called Gorgeous Grace and Sister Act, written by Karen Jones as part of her Babes Bible trilogy and published by Darton, Longman and Todd. Karen Jones and Louise Hall, thank you both for joining us. Thank you very much. And that's our programme for this week. On Sunday night at half past ten on RTE1 television, Blondedney Cuffig presents a new series of The Moment of Truth in which she discusses the context and consequences of life-changing choices with the individuals at the heart of the decisions. Dublin City Interfaith Forum and the Lutheran Church are organising an evening seminar on Thursday next, the 21st of November, with a focus on tolerance and acceptance. You can get further information from Adrian at dublincityinterfaithforum.org or Karina at lutheran-ireland.org. Our email address is godslot at rte.ie. The phone number is 01 2082039 and our postal address is the Godslot RTE Radio 1 Dublin 4. Next week on the 50th anniversary of the death of C.S. Lewis we'll have a special programme for you about the religious significance of his work and our special guests will be Doug Gresham, stepson of Lewis so I hope you'll join us then. It's on the Lynn, Gugudi Jishif. Because I gotta have faith. Mm.